0: Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure, which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is Dr. Diane Hennessy-Powell, who is a Johns Hopkins-trained neuropsychiatrist and neuroscientist, former Harvard faculty member, and an award-winning author and clinician. She began studying autism in 1987 when she spent six months with Sir Michael Rutter at the Institute of Psychiatry in London. She has served as a member of a think tank on the evolution of human consciousness at the Salk Institute, and as the director of research for the John E. Mack Institute. Her experimental research focuses on investigating reports of telepathy in autistic children, and has been presented in international science conferences in the US and abroad. She's a polymath whose theoretical work bridges multiple scientific disciplines in its analysis of case studies in neuropsychiatry but challenged materialism's neurocentric model. Her 2008 book, The ESP Enigma, A Scientific Case for Psychic Phenomena, presents a rational argument for a new paradigm, which is elaborated upon further in her chapter entitled Beyond Materialism and Madness, in the first volume published by the Academy for the Advancement of Postmaterialist Sciences, is consciousness primary. Well, uh, Diane, warm welcome to imaginal inspirations from your beautiful home in Oregon and I'm going to ask you first about a shaping moment involving your choice of work
1: yes and I when when you've asked that I it's hard for me to answer it because I've changed my uh, my work several times during the course of my career so it it um, depends upon which aspect of it you're talking about but I would say that my interest in consciousness really began when it was when I was only about 13 years old and a traveling magician was in town who had worked with a a friend of mine. And he said to me, I'm going to do a magic trick. And I said, oh, I said, what do you do? And he said, well, just go over to this bookcase behind you. And that bookcase was like the bookcase behind you. And he said, pick out any book on the shelf and then open it up and start reading it. And I'll stand at the other side of the room and I'll read it to you. And he was able to read it word for word as I was reading it, and I was really, you know, shocked. And he, you know, he said, you know, go pick up another book. And so I did that with 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 about three books. And I asked him, how did you do that? And he said, oh, well, it's magic. And magician never reveals his tricks. And so when I told my father about it, he he told me that there's something called telepathy, and um, that. That it um, is controversial, but but there seems to be some evidence for it. And this was, this was back in the, um, you know, this was back in the late '60s. And uh, my father was a scientist with graduate degrees in three different branches of science. So to hear that from my father gave it a certain validity. And so when I ran into uh, patients as a doctor who seemed to be telepathic, I had that in my mind as something that sort of allowed me to consider the possibility.
0: How fascinating, because that, that's almost like doing a, an early experiment, age 13, because you know, you, do, you take not just one book, but two or three books. I must say I've never heard of anything quite like that. It's quite, quite extraordinary. When you went to university, you didn't initially go into medicine. So where, where did you start when, with, with your studies? I
1: started out in architecture because I I have a love of science and design, and I was was an artist as well. And so I thought that that would be a really good combination of the two. And I was so advanced in my um, abilities at the time that I was taking courses on the side. And I took a course in physiological psychology Goodness. because I was fascinated by the behavior of animals. and and people. And when I took that course, I realized that there was a way of actually studying this from a scientific standpoint that, that made sense to me, that the, that the brain was just this mysterious organ that I wanted to learn more about. And so I, I ended up switching fields and going into neuroscience.
0: And then did you, I suppose Sir Michael Rutter must have been um, maybe an influential mentor or teacher, but maybe there are other people you know, who helped you on your way.
1: Oh, certainly. I mean, I would say the, the most influential person, though, in my life really was my father. And it was because he, when I was a child, he, he taught me math at a very early age. I was doing ninth grade math when I was only seven. Goodness. And so he gave me a perspective on how to just even think about the world, how to even approach it. That, that, that you could apply math, not just as a manipulation of symbols, but those symbols represented something that was out, um, you know, out in this, you know, thing that we call reality. Um, you know, so studying the mathematics of everyday things. So that was my, almost my first language. I mean, it, you know, I, I was learning math almost simultaneously with acquiring facility with words.
0: What were the disciplines? You said he was qualified in three different disciplines. Which ones were they? first of
1: all, marine biology. I mean, he was um, at the University of Hawaii before it was a state and he was doing deep dives down in the ocean to see the the creatures down there. Then he went on to genetics from the University of Utah. And then he went on to physiology um, at Ohio State University and then got his PhD in physiology in two years. And then became the, well, actually after that, he went to Hanford University, I mean Hanford Reservation, and was doing um, controlled testing with plutonium, because at the time they were doing testing with nuclear bombs just out in the West, out in the open. And he was one of the principal scientists that showed that um, we shouldn't be doing that. And um, and then he went on to um, University um, of Washington and did his postdoctorate in cardiovascular physiology and. Eventually became the head of the artificial heart program at the Tell Memorial Institute and has several patents under his name. Um, So he had a laboratory in the basement um, where he was doing, you know, developing these different. uh, you know, components for an artificial heart. So, so to have a father like that, is, <laughs> who, who oh, science a kid. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. And uh, so it's, it's no, it's no wonder that all of us became scientific uh, thinkers in my
0: family. And then what about books? I mean, I, I, I can't really ask this question of my guests, you know, a book that has shaped your life and thinking, but but what, what are some of the books that um, have influenced your, your way you've developed?
1: Well, I would say that the, the the book that was the most influential was Flatland, a romance in many dimensions by Edwin Abbott. And I read that book when I was, I, I learned to read when I was four and I, I, I read that book when I was about seven. And one of the things that when people think of that book, they think about how it teaches us about dimensionality, because it, it's written from the perspective of a square and how the square perceives a line. You know, lines are threatening to squares because the, 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 the line being um, two dimension, you know, being, you know, linear like that and not having any more than just, you know, two points that are connected to one another. It, it actually has difficulty seeing all of a square in, in, this, in this reality. You know, similar, the square has difficulty seeing the sphere which just looks like a circle as it's passing through the plane of existence. It looks like a point initially and then it becomes a circle and then a point. So this ability to think about dimensionality kind of opened up my mind to just thinking about things from, a, from different perspectives. And then on top of that, when, when I was older, I went back to reread it and I saw this whole other layer to it because it was also a social satire and it, it had aspects in it that were um, critical of basically communism, you know, because, you know, that there's these, um, you have these polygons that are in control of the world and they outlaw color, for example. <laughs> hmm. And they, they also want, if you're not a polygon who has all equal sides, then you're considered defective. And so you you undergo euthanasia. And, and so it, it has all of these. Kind of it's like a dystopian you know dystopian world that the square lives in who sees that the, the the perfect being is to be a circle and in this world a sphere every once in a while about every two thousand years or so a sphere enters and and into this sort of two-dimensional world and people are in awe. They don't know what it is that they see that goes from being a point to being a circle, then being a point, disappearing again, because they don't have the perspective to to actually see a a sphere. So it it shaped my mind in terms of being able to even think about consciousness, because consciousness is that complex of a topic.
0: This must have influenced the way that you come as you said yourself you you come at consciousness because there are limited and less limited ways of looking at consciousness and if you if you won't look through the telescope using the analogy that we use in the Galileo commission then you're not going to be you're not going to see what the telescope or more anomalous evidence might reveal and I think you've done a lot of research in this area.
1: Yes. And, and, and that's, a, that's a very good analogy with the telescope, because on the one hand, you're, you're, you're able to focus on something and see something that otherwise you wouldn't ordinarily see, but you're not actually seeing everything. You know, it's still a tunnel vision of sorts.
0: Yes. And, and tell us a little bit about your research on um, ESP and autism.
1: Well, when I was a teenager, another influential book in my choice of career was a book titled Dibs in Search of Self. And And it's a story of an autistic boy who turns out to be absolutely brilliant, but he's living in a world all of his own. And he works with a therapist named Virginia Axline, who really helps him come out of himself and, and, and I was really attracted to work with children like that, particularly when I saw that they were geniuses who were really traumatized by, by the, the world they lived in and that they were so sensitive. So after I, after I went through my training and worked with Sir Michael Rutter, I found that the area of uh, autism that I was the most interested in, because it wasn't really prevalent enough at that time to have a clinical practice of, of autism. And so I really was interested in it more as a um, as a theoretician. And Savant syndrome just fascinated me to no end. This idea that people could know information that they hadn't actually been taught or, or that they could have these um, basically super abilities, say, for example, in calculating things, or including particularly calendars, and yet not be able to do simple math. So I thought, if I want to understand how the mind works, I need to understand that phenomenon. And it also was resembled ESP so much that I, I really think of them as being um, almost, um, the, the ESP is, you know, a form of savant syndrome. And so I started looking for savants, and I, and I, um, made some presentations and started getting contacts from families of children that were savants. And when I started evaluating these children, one of the confounding variables was that the parents would say to me, well, I thought they were a savant, but now I've discovered they're telepathic and they're just getting the answers from my mind. And so I, I switched my, um, my research to, to studying the telepathy between them and their, usually it's a parent, but sometimes it's a teacher.
0: And is there, That might have been a key moment of insight, but I'm just wondering if there are any other key moments of insight in relation to your work um, that, that, that are worth mentioning at this point.
1: I think that another key insight is that um, I started to find that the most telepathic of these children are the ones that had their language disrupted in in their first two years of life. And so it made me wonder whether or not telepathy could be an innate ability that is part of how we acquire language. And then it and then it drops off when we actually do acquire language because we, you know, that's that's how society runs is predominantly through exchange of um, exchange of words using our voice or our ability to write. Whereas with these children, that was taken away from them because the way in which they, um, it's as though their consciousness is not fully integrated in their body, and and that's one of the reasons why they had difficulty. With motor skills. And so that affects both their speech and their ability to, to write. And do you uh,
0: I, I'm thinking back to Thomas J. Hudson, the law of psychic phenomena, which came out in 1890, which is the same year as William James's Principles of Psychology. And he and the new thought movement, they postulated a universal consciousness or a, a universal mind. And uh, do you find that a useful idea in the context of Savant syndrome or? Or not particularly. Yes, I
1: do. Yes, yes, I, I definitely do. I think of Carl Jung too, talking about collective, you know, consciousness, and I think about Edgar Casey and his description of the Akashic records, and so I, I do think that that that's a useful construct, and it, it really the way that these savants describing accessing the information, it's like they pluck it out of the ether. Sometimes they're getting it from they're cheating and getting it from their mother, and sometimes yes. <laughs> that that doesn't work. They go well, okay, I'll, I'll search for it in the ether. I mean that that's that's uh,
0: that, that's-, that's kind of resonant download in a sense. You know, you have got to tune into something, and then it, then you just find the information is there. Mm-hmm. And then how how does your understanding of consciousness influence the way you live your life?
1: I would say that it, it's helped me to be more present because I think that when we get engaged in thinking about the past too much or think about the future too much that we're, we're engaging in sort of this more linear thinking that, that is really non-productive. And, and I've, I've learned that even when I'm engaging in simple tasks that my my mind is, my consciousness is, is working on things, because I, I've seen that sometimes I, I, I come up with a solution when I just set it something aside and, and, and don't put so much thought into it, that, that it just pops into me, just like we sometimes get an answer from a dream. that, that So I have more respect, I think, for, for the, those unconscious processes than I did before.
0: Yes, and I think this is a lot of Ian McGilchrist goes into a lot of detail about this in his new masterwork, the the matter with things, um, and particularly the relationship between right and left hemispheres um, in uh, different types of attention and cognition in this respect. Is there any other experience you'd like to mention at this point, um, which has been important uh, in your life and work and development?
1: Well, I would say that Gary Schwartz has had a big influence on me. And um, the reason why I say that is that I first met him probably about 15 years ago at at a conference, and he was talking about his work with mediums. And that was a whole other layer to consciousness that I had never <laughs> even considered. You know, this whole, this whole survival um, question. And um, Ian Stevenson's and his work on reincarnation. And so, so I, I, once again, sort of went back to the, you know, the drawing board that, because then you have to think about a model of consciousness that allows for, for, for those kinds of things if those things are real.
0: No, very much. And there's been quite an active debate on survival net in the last few um, weeks or days on on the the survival hypothesis in relation to living living agent psi. Um, So obviously there are very many different views one can take. And then um, do you have a favorite proverb or or quote um, that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes, it actually
1: um, comes from Taoism. And it's The English translation of it is Don't Forget the Farmer Who Lost His Horse.
0: Ah, which is the whole story, (laughs) in fact, isn't it?
1: So it's about a farmer back in Imperial China who had horses, and, and one day one of them ran off, and he tells his neighbor, who says to him, oh, that's too bad, and he says, well, I don't know. And so then the horse comes back, with all of these other horses with it. So now they've got more, he's got more than one horse and he tells the neighbor this and the neighbor says, oh, that's wonderful. And he goes, well, I don't know. And one of the horses is quite wild. And so, so the son of this man gets on the horse and he's trying to tame it and it gets thrown off the horse and breaks his leg. And the neighbor says, oh, that's terrible. And the farmer says, well, I don't know. And so then what happens is, is that the emperor is going to war and he's rounding up all able young men to become part of the army. And he comes there, that, that someone comes there to get the son and sees that he is crippled by this fall and, and doesn't take him. And so the farmer says to the neighbor this story and he says, wow, that's that's really good. And the farmer says, well, we'll see, you know, I don't know. So it, it, it truly is this... Um, story that really says to us, this need that we have to label something as good or bad is really coming from a small perspective that, that if we can kind of get the bird's eye view and just get further and further away from it, once, once you're at the end of the story, then you can say <laughs> something about things. But, but along the process, um, that, that, that really holding back any judgment
0: is, is the, the approach to life. Indeed. You know, wait and see. Now, I love that story. I first read it in Alan Watts. And and then finally, Diane, uh, any advice you'd give your younger self from where you are now? Probably don't worry, be happy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a good piece of advice. And and we've had some very, very succinct suggestions from many of our contributors. And this happens to be the podcast number 25. So Diane, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom and insight with us. Thank
1: you. It's been a pleasure.